open your Bibles with me to the book of Exodus. It's near the very beginning of your Bibles. Genesis, then Exodus. We're going to begin this morning in Exodus 13. We're going to spend the next several weeks, this month and next, looking at this, this central section here in the book of Exodus. Earlier in uh, this year, 2022, we looked at the opening chapters of Exodus, where God, by his great power, took his people who were slaves, and God conquered the power of Pharaoh, and Pharaoh eventually relented and let God's people go. Chapter 12 ends with the exodus, the people actually leaving leaving Egypt, and now they're on their way to the promised land. And so these, these central chapters here in Exodus are the pathway from Egypt to Mount Sinai, where they will receive the law from God himself. The Old Testament book of Exodus, and if you're looking for this in the Bible that's there in front of you, you can find it on page 66. It's right near the beginning of your Bible. The, the story of Exodus, this whole book, is the, is the rescue of God's people. It says, one commentator says, the gospel of the Old Testament, the good news, that God is the God who saves. The God is the one who will provide an atoning sacrifice for our sins. The God hears our prayers and responds to us. So the people have been rescued by God, and now God gives them instructions on how they are to remember this rescue. This is Exodus 13. I'm going to read verses 1 through 16. Exodus 13. The Lord said to Moses, Consecrate to me every firstborn male. The first offspring of every womb among the Israelites belongs to me, whether man or animal. Then Moses said to the people, Commemorate this day, the day you came out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery, because the Lord brought you out of it with a mighty hand. Eat nothing containing yeast. Today in the month of Abib you are leaving. When the Lord brings you into the land of the Canaanites, Hittites, Amorites, Hivites, and Jebusites, the land he swore to your forefathers to give you, a land flowing with milk and honey. You are to observe this ceremony in this month. For seven days eat bread made without yeast, and on the seventh day hold a festival to the Lord. Eat unleavened bread during those seven days. Nothing with yeast in it is to be seen among you, nor shall any yeast be seen anywhere within your borders. On that day tell your son, I do this because of what the Lord did for me. When I came out of Egypt, this observance will be for you like a sign on your hand and a reminder on your forehead that the law of the Lord is to be on your lips. For the Lord brought you out of Egypt with his mighty hand. You must keep this ordinance at the appointed time, year after year. After the Lord brings you into the land of the Canaanites and gives it to you, as he promised on oath to give you, to give to you and your forefathers, you are to give over to the Lord the first offspring of every womb. All the firstborn males of your livestock belong to the Lord. Redeem with a lamb every firstborn donkey, but if you do not redeem it, break its neck. Redeem every firstborn among your sons. In the days to come when your son asks you, what does this mean? Say to him, with a mighty hand the Lord brought us out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. When Pharaoh stubbornly refused to let us go, the Lord killed every firstborn in Egypt, both man and animal. This is why I sacrifice to the Lord the first male offspring of every womb and redeem each of my firstborn sons. And it will be like a sign on your hand and a symbol on your forehead that the Lord brought us out of Egypt with his mighty hand. Let's bow in prayer.
Father in heaven, as we read your word, we're reminded of your great power and your mercy. And so, Lord, as we listen to this sermon, to the preaching of the word, I pray that you would confront us with our sin, that each one of us would feel the, the weight of our guilt, that we would understand that we personally need forgiveness. And Lord, where we find forgiveness, let us, let us in Jesus Christ, then live with hope, with joy, with the boldness to share the message that I respond in faith because of what the Lord has done for me, that I will respond in obedience because of what the Lord did for me. Lord, make us a people who proclaim your work. We pray in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Sometimes our childhood logic doesn't stand up to scrutiny. Our explanation that we thought, well, this must be the way it is, it well, it turns out to be childish. I had a childhood understanding of life that I didn't even realize was silly until adulthood. Okay, I'm the third-born child in my family and the second-born son of an older brother and sister. And my older brother is named after my father, who was named after his father. So my brother is John Michael III. Okay, that all makes sense. Here's where I added my childish logic. As a second-born son, I developed the assumption that the right to name a son after you was only given to a first-born son. So it made sense to me as an adult that my brother named his son John Michael IV. But I would never name my son after me because I'm not a first-born son. And, and this, I, I didn't even realize that this logic wasn't universally shared until... Laura and I found out we were having a firstborn son, and she said, well, should we consider naming him after you? And I just looked at her like, no, we would, why would we, you can't, you, I, I, well, and, and, and she, like, why? Why wouldn't that be at least be part of the conversation that he would be named after you? And I explained, I'm not a firstborn son. And she looked at me like, but he is. <laughs> See, in my head, it made perfect sense. Now, to be fair to my childish thinking, I'm not sure my assumptions were any less reasonable than our other historical naming conventions. The mavens of manor from previous generations, Emily Post, Amy Vanderbilt, uh, Judith Martin, who was Miss Manners herself, they, they have some strange naming conventions. Like when they describe to you the rules of names, now maybe you already knew this because I've already proven the fact that I was completely lost when it came to naming a firstborn son. But, but I was surprised by this fact. Did you know that when several generations of men are living with a shared name and the eldest dies, that each man is supposed to move up a notch? That junior becomes senior, that the third becomes junior, the fourth becomes the third? Yeah, see, that sounds crazy to me, too. Because think of, I mean, just think of the legal headaches of changing your name and every one of those, I mean, the amount of time you'd spend at the DMV, it's not, it's not worth switching the names. See, because those kinds of naming conventions, well, they're just cultural. When we think about firstborn, we think in terms of, of names. And in the end, we sort of named David after me. He took my middle name, but I, I just couldn't bring myself to give him my whole name because I wasn't the firstborn. Now, he could name his son. If he ever has a son, he could name his son after himself because he would, would. But you see, the, the logic, it doesn't really stand up because it's just, it's just 
what we culturally assume about what it is to be firstborn. Or, or sometimes when we talk about the firstborn, we kind of think of birth order in a family, like a family that has multiple kids and, and the personalities of the firstborn and the, and the baby of the family and the middle child, and we, we think in those terms. But, but in the ancient world, in the ancient Jewish and, and Egyptian understanding, the connections to, to the firstborn, particularly a firstborn son, were much more significant. The firstborn son had greater rights of inheritance than any of his siblings. He carried, not only, he carried on not only the family's name, but the family fortune would rest with him. The family's identity, the family's very future, their, their existence was dependent upon a firstborn son, which, well, those kinds of ideas weren't just ancient. Those continue through medieval times and even into modern monarchies trying to figure out who will take the throne. And so God's attack on the firstborn of Egypt in the final plague is God really challenging the very foundations of Pharaoh's kingdom. Pharaoh, who had tried to stand up through the series of judgments that God brought against him for his sins, on the night of the Passover, loses the very thread of his kingdom. His son, whether a beloved son or a son that was ostracized from him, was the one who would one day sit on a throne. And remember, this, this Egyptian dynasty, I mean, this is the kind of dynasty that, that lasted for 30 centuries over the course of its lifetime. I mean, we think three centuries as a country is a long time to last. I mean, the, the pyramids of Egypt were older for, for Moses, when he arrived in Egypt, older than if you go and visit like Notre Dame Cathedral. They were historic already in the time of the Exodus. And so the threat against the firstborn, the death of the firstborn of Egypt, is God saying he has absolute authority over everything, over everyone. The people gained freedom from Egypt not by their own strength, but because God himself intervened on their behalf. And so when we come to chapter 13, the people having been rescued, brought out of Egypt, God then reminds them of what he has done. Look, look back at verse 2 of Exodus 13. God, speaking through Moses, tells the people, consecrate to me every firstborn male. Or jumping down to verse 3, the command given, Commemorate this day, the day, day you came out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. See, this is the day in which the, the firstborn need to be consecrated. It's a, it's a reminder that, that they are not to eat anything containing yeast. Because these, these, these big and small uh, actions are meant to remind them what, of what God has done. Uh, thankfully, in this passage, which admittedly, when we, when we think of the, the historical relevance of, of sacrifice, it, it feels so distant to us. So thankfully in this passage, God explains directly what does it mean. He doesn't say, just say, do this. He says, do this, and I'll explain to you why you're doing this so that you understand the significance behind it. It's, it's that moment that a, that a child comes to a parent and says, but why? And you finally, in exasperation, just say, because I said so. Well, God's going to get past the because I said so and explain it to us. In verse 14, he explains why the firstborn must be consecrated. Look at verse 14. In the days to come when your son asks you, what does this mean? Say to him, 
With a mighty hand, the Lord brought us out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. When, when you celebrate the Feast of Unleavened Bread, what does it mean? We'll look back at verse 9. This observance will be for you like a sign on your hand and a reminder on your forehead that the law of the Lord is to be on your lips. For the Lord brought you out of Egypt with his mighty hand. So, all of chapter 13 is, is the moment. As soon as they're released from bondage, the God says, stop. Remember what just happened. You didn't get out because you were more cunning than Pharaoh. You didn't get out because you outsmarted him in the court systems. You didn't get out because you raised up an army and defeated him. You are free because of my mighty hand. That's what Yahweh the God of the covenant, the God of his promise, says to them, stop and remember that every time a, a, a firstborn son arrives, that I was the God that passed over your sons to bring judgment on Egypt. When you, when you come to this season of the year, when you come to this date on your calendars, circle it. Anticipate that, that you will stop and remember why. Why do we do this? And so let's take a few minutes looking at, at each of these commands, the, the, the celebration of this, this unleavened bread, this feast given, and the, the commands to, to consecrate the firstborn, and, and understand how they point us to the work of God, that salvation is entirely God's accomplishment. First, as we look at this feast of unleavened bread, it's a feast which is meant to be in the seven days following the Passover. The Passover is the night of rescue, when the people of God had to take a lamb and sacrifice it in the place of their firstborn son. They took the blood from the sacrifice, they, they consumed it as a meal, but then they took the blood from the sacrifice and, and painted the doorposts of their home. And God, when he came in judgment through Egypt, he passed over those houses. Because a sacrifice had already been made, death had already come. The price for the sin of God's people had already been paid by an atoning sacrifice. But the houses of the Egyptians, the judgment was brought by God. And so in the seven days following this Passover, the Israelites were, were meant to, to eat only bread, or eat the, any bread that they ate was, was meant to be made without yeast. A reminder, we're told in chapter 12, if you look back there, if you have a Bible open, in, in chapter 12, verse 39, we read that it's, well, because they had to rush out. They didn't have time to, you don't have to, if, if, you're, if you're fleeing for your life, you don't have time to sit around and, you know, like, let's watch the, the dough rise. In chapter 12, verse 39, we read, with the dough they had brought from Egypt, they baked cakes of unleavened bread. The dough was without yeast because they had been driven out of Egypt and did not have time to prepare food for themselves. And so it's just a reminder that, that you were in such a rush, you just, you, you could barely grab enough to sustain you. It's God who rescued you. But, but the language through the scriptures talks about the, the, the leavening of bread as, as also a, it has spiritual significance. That they are meant to be separate from Egypt. They have been physically, geographically brought out of Egypt, but they are also meant to be spiritually separate. That they have quit this land because they are freed from the land of slavery. 
so that they can go into a land that is flowing with milk and honey, a a phrase, a, a, a sort of simple explanation that everything you need will be provided for you in the land. There will be cattle already roaming on the hills. It's a, it's a land flowing with milk. There's, there's honey, there's, there's resources. Everything you need will be given to you. You are no longer slaves in Egypt. You have been set free. Set free from the power of Pharaoh and now called, and we read this already in verse nine, called to obey the Lord. The very reason that you celebrate this festival at the beginning of the year for seven days is to be reminded that the law of the Lord is supposed to be on your lips. That because God rescued you, well now, obey him. If God would do that for you, then following after him is is the only reasonable thing. See, we we sometimes think of of freedom in absolute terms. And, And I think this is this is just a result of, of, well, maybe that we're Americans, or maybe we just live in the, the shadow of the Enlightenment, and we think, uh, for me to be free, I have to be able to do anything, anytime, however I want. That's what freedom would be. Well, that's not a biblical conception of freedom. Because, well, the danger with just doing whatever you want, whenever you want, however you want, is that, well, you end up not only hurting others, you end up hurting yourself, because you're going to put yourself in situations where people end up getting hurt by your selfishness. See, a biblical conception of freedom, though, tells us that, that, that our obedience to God's commands actually protects us. Because you're in the right place to do the right thing. And so you are freed from the power of sin in order to obey God. You're not free to just run off and do whatever you want. No, you're freed so that now the law of the Lord will be on your lips. One commentator says that the people of God were freed from the power of Pharaoh. They are freed to be the happy servants of an even greater power. They're not free to just run off and do whatever they want. They're freed now to be who they were meant to be, the people of God. Obedience is for our protection. It keeps us from harm, physically, relationally, spiritually. And so God's laws provide genuine freedom. Not an absolute autonomy that just runs roughshod over everyone around us, but a freedom that says, live with joy here, in this way, in a way that protects your neighbor and your family. Like the parent who prevents a child from playing in traffic, God has put us in a place to fully enjoy our freedoms as his children. And so spend the first seven days after you celebrate the Passover with this festival of unleavened bread, as you remember, you were rescued by God. You have now been set apart by God for his purposes. Now, the second command in this passage is the command to dedicate the first offspring of every womb to the Lord. That in verse 12, that's the command, not just for the the children born, but for every animal that is born. Because God is the one who divinely saved the firstborn. And so they have been saved from death and they now belong to God. Verse 15, so here in in Exodus 13, verse 15, and the explanation given to a child of why, like what are we doing? Why are we taking here in the springtime this, this new lamb and sacrificing this lamb? Why, when I was born and did you, did, you have to, did you have to redeem me? Well, 
verse 15, we get an answer from God. When Pharaoh stubbornly refused to let us go, the Lord killed every firstborn in Egypt, both man and animal. This is why I sacrificed to the Lord the first offspring, the first male offspring of every womb and redeem each of my firstborn sons. In, in the, the next books, as God explains this in greater detail in the book of, of Numbers, he'll say, the firstborn are mine. When I struck down every firstborn in Egypt, I set aside the firstborn in Israel, whether man and animal, for myself. They are to be mine. I am the Lord. Now, it, it feels like, but wait, what's happening still? Some of this is just because of, the, I think, the centuries of, of historical distance from, from what happens here in Exodus. Some of it is that, that few of us live in a place where, oh, it's springtime, we got to be watching the animals here on the farm and see who needs help giving birth. So we're, we're, we're remotely distant from, from this, this process of birth. And then some of it is that, well, rightly now, we don't bring physical sacrifices into worship. We're set free from the obligations of sacrifice because of the sacrifice that has already been made for us. But the sacrifices given here are that the firstborn offspring of those animals that could be offered as sacrifices, as part of the, the rituals, they were to, to themselves be offered in sacrifice. So the animals that are clean in, in the, the Old Testament law, they are to be offered as sacrifice. But the unclean animals, the beasts of burden, well, they can't be a sacrifice themselves, so you have to take another animal, a lamb, and for a donkey, you sacrifice the lamb. Now, I have to admit, the, the worst part of this, like, I don't think any of you have this in your Bible memory plans for the year. Look at verse 13. Redeem with a lamb every firstborn donkey, but if you do not redeem it, break its neck. What? Like, one, that sounds horrific because... The only donkeys I know talk in cartoon voices. So it seems just horrific. But what God is saying is, this beast of burden, the firstborn, is mine. So what you should do is you take a lamb and you sacrifice it in the place of this animal. But if, if you can't, if you don't have access to a lamb, if, if that's more costly to you than this animal, well, then the animal has to die because you can't take from God what belongs to him. You can't say, well, it's God's, but you know what? He's, I don't think he's using it right now, so I'll just keep it. Now, I don't think any of you have trouble figuring out, does this donkey belong to me or to the Lord? But I think in our lives, we struggle with this biblical concept. Is this mine or God's? We, we struggle with it when it comes to our tithes and offerings. I mean, I worked for it. It's, I, like, I'm the one who will pay taxes on this. I'm the one who's, who's at risk of not having enough next week or next year. So I think it's mine. And the scriptures say, no, you're just a steward. Everything belongs to the Lord. And so give to the Lord what is his. I think we do it with our time. You know, I, you know I've worked hard. I just need to, you know, blow off some steam. I just need well, what if, what if we used that time and invested it for the Lord? Or maybe it's, it's worse with our obedience in all kinds of areas where we say, I know what God wants of me, but I think my way is better. See, the principle here of, of donkey killing 
is that everything belongs to the Lord, explicitly the firstborn here, because of the rescue that God brought from Egypt. And so if you, if you can't give it to the Lord, well, then you can't take it for your own. Now, of course, God, in contrast to the, the work of the, or the, the patterns of the nations, the Canaanites, Hittites, Jebusites, the land in, to which the people will go, who, who would willingly sacrifice children. I mean, it's, uh, my, uh, my news feed is filled with archaeology news. Um, I mean, if you read my newsfeed, you'd be like, so Kevin, you, you watch baseball and hockey and archaeology. Is that, is that all that you look at? So, but, but, but you get a, a news story that shows that, uh, you know, a, a, a burial site has been found confirming the practices of child sacrifice among this culture, which thankfully in our culture, we still have a revulsion against, which I think is a God-given revulsion that like, no, I shouldn't kill this child. But the Canaanites, Jebusites, as they worship their gods, well, at times you would sacrifice a child. But God says, no, you are to redeem your firstborn. And in, in the book of, of Numbers, he'll, he'll, he'll explain how you do this. You actually will pay a price. You will go into the temple and you will pay five shekels of silver. That's the redemption price set for your firstborn son. Which is why when Jesus is born, the Gospel of Luke tells us that, that of course, on the eighth day he was circumcised, as was the command given to Abraham. And according to this command given here in Exodus 13, well, Joseph and Mary, this is in Luke 2, Joseph and Mary took Jesus to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. And then the explanation Luke gives actually quotes our passage He says, as it is written in the law of the Lord, every firstborn male is to be consecrated to the Lord. So they went and they paid the redemption price. They offered the the command of a a sacrifice of a, a, a pair of doves or two young pigeons as given in the book of Leviticus. That every firstborn is meant to be redeemed because he belongs to the Lord. Now these sacrifices, Exodus 13 is 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 one of those passages that prepares us repeatedly for the ministry of Jesus Christ. This is one of those passages that you can't help but read as a Christian and say, oh, I see a connection. Now, of course, the connection to Luke 2 is is a direct connection. It's, It's quoted there. That Jesus himself was redeemed. His parents paid the redemption price as commanded here. But of course, the sacrifices of Exodus 13 prepare us for the death of Jesus. He is the one who has come to redeem us. And and not only that, the scriptures pick up this language that Jesus is the firstborn. Now, of course, he is Mary's firstborn son. But the scriptures actually describe Jesus as the firstborn in even grander ways. You've already heard some of them in our worship service today. In, in Romans chapter 8, Jesus is called, the, that because of his resurrection, Jesus is described in, in Romans 8, 29, that he is the firstborn among many brothers. That everyone who believes in Jesus is welcomed into the family of God because Jesus is the one who has all the rights of the inheritance. He's the one who has the very name of Yahweh upon him. He is the Lord. He's the firstborn. Or the book of Colossians when describing the the ministry of Jesus. 
describes him, looking back, not, not just to his work on the cross, not just to his birth at Christmas, but looking all the way back to creation and says, Jesus is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. It all belongs to him. He's the son whose, whose inheritance includes all things. The book of Hebrews describes the, the ministry of Jesus. We're told in, in Hebrews 1 that, that God brings his firstborn into the world and commands the angels to worship him. Jesus Christ is the firstborn. The firstborn of creation, the firstborn of redemption, the firstborn of the resurrection. Jesus is the firstborn in the kingdom of God. Jesus is the Son of God with all the rights and privileges that come with being the firstborn. But more than that, more than that, Exodus is preparing us that Jesus is not only the firstborn, Jesus is the one who provides the price of redemption. Jesus is the Redeemer who pays the redemption price. And the redemption price is not the, the price given to us in the book of Numbers of five shekels for a son. No, the redemption price is Jesus himself. We've already sung of it this morning, but think of the way the Apostle Peter describes the ministry of Jesus. This is 1 Peter chapter 1. Peter tells believers, he tells us, he says, For you know that it was not with perishable things such as silver or gold that you were redeemed from the empty way of life handed down to you, from your forefathers. The five shekels wasn't enough. Because, of course, after those shekels were paid, sacrifices had to be brought year after year. No, P Peter tells us in 1 Peter 1.19 that you were redeemed from your empty way of life. You were rescued from your sin. You were bought out of slavery, he tells us, with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish, or defect. See, that's the message that we have in, in Exodus 13. That God has done all of the work of salvation. That you are meant to stop and remember what God has done. That's, that's what confronts us as we come to this table today. Do this, Jesus says, in remembrance of me. The, we remember that Jesus' body was broken, his blood was shed, he is our redeemer. You have been redeemed, you've been bought with a price, the precious blood of Jesus Christ. And so when you're asked, why do we do this? Why are we here? Why, why do we obey? Why do you follow after God? You can answer as Exodus 13 instructs us, I do this because of what the Lord did for me when I came out of Egypt. Because you've been rescued from slavery, from slavery to sin, from, from the torments of hell, God purchased your salvation. You and I can say, Jesus is my Redeemer. Let's bow in prayer as we come to the table of the Lord. Father, we thank you for your word given to us here in this Old Testament book. We thank you that your scriptures are clear about where we can find salvation, that we can be rescued by the ministry of Jesus Christ, our Savior.
that because he died, because he's been raised again, we can be forgiven of our sins. Lord, for those that hear this word without faith in Jesus Christ, give them the faith to believe. For those that listen to your word and yet, yet look at their, their lives and realize they, they have not stopped to remember what you have done, they are not living in obedience. Lord, turn them from sin to follow after Christ in gospel hope, in joy-filled and thankful obedience. Lord, as we come to this table, prepare us for the continuing ministry of Jesus Christ who is here with us. And so we pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.